0: Welcome back to the program. When we look at the vast expanse of history, we find that there are periods when the world seemingly shifts on its axis, when change is dramatic, when our whole way of looking at and understanding events changes. Perhaps the 60s were such a time, perhaps we're in such a period today. The impact of technology, globalization, deindustrialization, social, cultural, and economic change, only history will be able to give us the answers. What we are learning is that the period of time leading up to the Civil War, the war itself and the reconstruction that followed, was such a period. It gave rise to events that created tectonic shifts and was populated by characters whose special quality secures their place in history. This is the period written about by my guest Brenda Wineapple in her new book, Ecstatic Nation*. Brenda Wineapple is the author of several books, including White Heat, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times Book Review and The Nation. She teaches at the New School and Union College. And it is my pleasure to welcome Brenda Wineapple to the program to talk about Ecstatic Nation, Confidence, Crisis, and Compromise, 1848-1877, Brenda Wineapple, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about the overview of this 30-plus year period. Too often when we learn about these events, when we study history, we look at the individual events and in many ways we lose sight of, of the broader context in which they had such profound impact on, on society and the way it changed things in ways that, that only the rearview mirror and an overview will explain to us
1: right uh, I think that's exactly right I remember learning history in high school and events seemed very discreet so you learned about the Civil War if you learned about it at all in um, Lincoln's assassination but it seemed separate from everything else that was going on in the culture and then when you step back as you said you realize that at this particular time you have such an array of characters you have uh, Lincoln and Grant and uh, Sherman and Jefferson Davis on the one hand, but you have P.T. Barnum and Whitman and Melville uh, on the other. You have the rise of photography as well as the rise of the railroads. All of this happening at the same time, and then the period after the war that we think of as Reconstruction, which it was, is also the time that we're settling the West, um, just, you know, um, uh, exploiting the gold there uh, in California, and uh, at the same time where um really getting rid of the indians too and sending photographers to survey the beautiful country so um it's a it's a it's an unusual time it seems to me i think all of the times we live in seem unusual but certainly that's
0: true And there are also thematic underpinnings that run through this period involving, as you write about, the anti-slavery movement, women's rights, America turning inward, beginning to see forces resistant to change in the country. Talk about those things.
1: Yes, forces resistance to change and forces committed to change, and of course, uh, they come into terrible collision in uh, the Civil War, we know that, um, but of course, the anti-slavery movement starts way before this period, and really becomes, I think, um, much more powerful during the period, uh, because you have, as I mentioned, the settling of the West, you have the ne- Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, which uh violates the Missouri compromise and in one of the titles of the book or the subtitle is compromise and you see that uh in maybe in much like our era that the compromises that the country was founded on uh, are beginning to shift, fray, fall apart entirely so that uh so that abolition becomes Almost a necessity. Women want the vote. That's very powerful. They don't get it as we know, but there is this sense of finally we're going to make the promise of freedom and equality in America real, uh, and that we actually can do this. We can change the novel, we can change the South, we can change the way we live. So it's a very exciting time, too. But as I said, the forces against these kinds of changes, uh, in some sense, uh, come to blows. They're, you know, and, and maybe that's a warning for us.
0: Was there a sense that somewhere along the way there was a guiding force, a guiding hand in all this? I mean, Lincoln talked about the fact that he didn't control events, sometimes events controlled him. Was there a sense that there were political forces or individuals that were somehow driving this? Or was it really a disparate series of events rising out of certain conditions?
1: Well, that's an excellent question, of course, and I think that the fairest answer um, is that there were both. I mean, Lincoln was a very savvy politician, and I mean that as a consummate uh, compliment, not as a negative. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think that being a politician is negative, but certainly uh, Lincoln, when he said, events uh controlled him. Uh he was being he was he was being sly. That was true, but he was the president. He was the executive. He did stand up uh to the south's uh you know secession. Um so he was controlling things. But at the same time, I think you're absolutely right that there were forces that were and just dis- disparate events that were happening John Brown Um, His raid on Harper's Ferry being one such example, one such extreme example, that really forced the hand in some ways of north and south, and that there was a sense that, I had the sense anyway, that people weren't listening to each other and they were really... They were becoming overpowered. They unleashed passions that were unbridled and and very hard to call back, and in some ways for good reasons and in some ways for bad reasons. That's why I chose the um, title of the book, Ecstatic Nation, because uh, the sense of ecstasy implies a sense of joyousness, liberation, excitement, enthusiasm, change, but there's also um, a quality of delirium and denial that's involved in ecstasy, too, and and that had tragic consequences.
0: Talk about it from the perspective of the way America turned inward. There was really this sense of, I would say, isolationism, but America being isolated to deal with its own problems at this point.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, America was expanding in terms of the actual physical. A uh, landscape. Uh, California came in uh, as a state in this particular period. Um, the acquisition of much land uh, after the Mexican War made America uh, rich in natural resources. But the kind of divisions um, and the kind of acrimony and the kind of debates that were going on at home really did make America turn inward. And one symbolic event, I felt, was um, that the laying of the transatlantic cable, which was going to unite the, uh, America with England and hence uh, Europe, uh, initially when it was first um, laid, um, it failed. The signal failed, and uh, Buchanan, President Buchanan at the time, tried to speak to the Queen Victoria, they did a little bit, and then there was no signal, and I thought that was Symbolic, because uh, the uh, the United States really couldn 't reach out, um, it had to take care of its own problems at home, and, as you say then turn inward and it wasn 't so much a case of isolationism um, and ignoring the rest of the world, it was a sense of we can't even deal with the rest of the world right now. We, we ha- we're fighting a war. Of course, both the South and the North would have liked England and France to get involved on their sides, and, and wisely, um, they did not, um, so that it became very much a domestic uh, struggle.
0: Of course, perhaps the corollary to, to the transatlantic cable was the yeah. transcontinental railroad, which was mm-hmm. much more significant at that moment in time.
1: Absolutely, well that, that, you know, uh, Lincoln, even though there's a war going on, he, he really expanded the railroad system so that the transatlantic, uh, railroad, I mean, I'm sorry, the transcontinental railroad, um was finished after the war and that's really, um what helped unite east and west and really made east turn more west, uh, and northeast turn more toward the west, uh, rather than the south and in some ways, um, because the West was so rich in resources and minerals, um, and the South was so poor and devastated uh, that that was one of I think the causes of the um, the ways in which reconstruction did not work, so the transcan Continental Railroad was enormously important, and also the railroad was very important, not only during the war for carrying munitions and men, but after the war uh, was a way of transporting uh, settlers out to the West, and of course that created problems for the Native Americans, and more than that too. Railroad monopolies were becoming very strong, and at this period you had um, starting what 's known as the Gilded Age, you know a time of tremendous resources and riches for uh, many, but nothing for others
0: there 's also as, as you spend time talking about a remarkable collection of individuals that came together at this point, sometimes forming groups and alliances that that one might not expect
1: yes, absolutely, and uh, very interesting in that particular regard, as you mentioned before you have um even before the civil war the the start of the women's movement, and that you have uh women uh, during the war joining the abolition movement, and then after the war feeling that the cause of suffrage had been really sold out to them. And so some of the women, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, join up with a, uh, a rich and kind of crazy racist named George Train um, because he's helping fund the movement. And they're saying politics are pragmatic, so what? Um, he is a uh, craven racist and of course many of the abolitionists who had been part of the women's movement then left be- partly because of this racist and partly because they felt that black men should be enfranchised first so you get these kinds of strange bedfellows in a way um, you have John Brown reaching out to uh the wonderful order and ex slave Frederick Douglass, and Douglass is, in that particular case, rational enough and wise enough to say, um, I don't really think I'm going to join your so-called insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Um, You have P.T. Barnum. You have Whitman interviewing P.T. Barnum early in Whitman's career. Uh, and uh from that point of view, I can see there's a way in which uh Whitman becomes the p t Barnum of poetry embracing everything and everyone um and uh even though uh Barnum is in some sense not only embracing everyone but also um making good money on it, so it's a very interesting period because of these strange and wonderful bedfellows uh that shift and change, um, uh, all over, all over the place. One of the sort of strangest characters is a man named Horace Greeley, who was the, uh, editor of the New York uh, Tribune, very powerful paper at the time, who actually ran for president and wanted to displace, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was extraordinarily popular when he was president, even though there were problems in his presidency. So it's very exciting to see that this same moment includes, uh, Longfellow and Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony and P.T. Barnum and Walt Whitman and Grant, and then you have, you know, somebody like, um, uh, William Tecumseh sherman uh, marching through the South and then leading politics and fighting indians so it's, it's uh, it 's fascinating really is fascinating it I was know.
0: it was also a period of tremendous innovation in so many areas mm.
1: yes that's uh, it's remarkable innovation I mentioned before um, certainly the uh, photograph is one, I think, example because it's still with us and we almost take it for granted um, and now we have things like Instagram so we're constantly in a world of visual images but here during the Civil War you have for the first time photographers going out and becoming in some sense war journalists which is rather remarkable in many ways and so that uh, then the settlement as I mentioned of the West is also doing part of, of of images because images were coming back uh, to various other parts of the country, showing how beautiful, say, place like Yosemite might be. So um, that's really tremendously, I think, exciting, and really changes our view of history because suddenly we can see history. We we've seen that war. We've seen the faces of various people. We've seen uh, we've seen pictures of uh, of an unpopulated and rather breathtakingly beautiful West. Um, so I think that that's an exciting time in terms of you know what is changing, and then, of course, we could start talking about technological changes, not just the railroad but the development of certain military weapons uh during this time that was uh uh i think um uh made accelerated, you know, because of the war. Uh, War does
0: that. The other thing that was going on as a result of much that we're talking about, and, and it's something we can relate to today on a different level, is the sense of time speeding up, partly as a result of travel, the telegraph innovation. There was a sense that events were moving much more quickly in the country
1: yes as you mentioned in a certain way, there was a sense in which that's why Lincoln I think was very smart to say, "I haven 't controlled events, events have controlled me because there was the sense that people felt um to a certain extent that they were uh being buffeted by events, and that as you say, time had accelerated enormously and again partly because of technological advances that you can get from one place to another in a much faster way with the railroad and that you can communicate. You mentioned the telegraph. Telegraph is such an important form of dispatch before uh, during and after the war the war, during the war, for obvious reasons, because of you can get um certain information out uh, to uh, various troops about troop movements, but then of course, after the war, this becomes very important in terms of the kind of rise to riches that you have at this particular time so someone who was born say i don 't know in eighteen 18- uh, 30 would see, like Emily Dickinson, for example, would see enormous changes during the period of her lifetime, uh, where you would have to go someplace by a horse and buggy and suddenly there were these, uh, iron monstrosities, uh, iron horses that would take people all over the country. So there was a sense, I think you're right, that time in space had changed enormously. Um, and I think it's very comparable. Uh, to our own time, with uh, you know,
0: with the advent of uh, you know not
1: just well computers certainly, and then of course the internet.
0: There was a sense that this was the first time where the world would change in people's lifetime. That in fact they would start out one way, and and the world would be very different later on in their life. You mentioned also the the rise yes. to riches. One of the other yes. interesting yes. things is the way in which the gilded age seemed to have started much earlier than most people think.
1: Yeah, I was actually fascinated by that. We've learned that history is kind of consecutive in moves in certain ways and that there's this and then this. But actually all of the movements that we come with that we learn about they're simultaneous. And the Gilded Age, you could actually say, begins to start almost during the war when there are war profiteers making lots of money uh off, say union um uh Uniforms, you know, something like that, and certainly the great profiteering. I mentioned the railroads, the great, um, the the great sense that uh, there was there were new markets. Uh, to be had and exploited uh, because you could get to them for the first time. Uh, that's all happening, actually, uh, before, during, and certainly after the war. And I, again, thought of the Gilded Ages as sort of late 70s and 80s, but, as I said, this is starting really in the 1860s, and much of the accusation of corruption during the Grant administration had to do with the fact that a great deal of, People, you know not everyone by any means, but a number of people are making vast uh amounts of money and Mark Twain is alive during this period too he's also born in eighteen um thirties and he he says you know the the object of you know the American is to make money he's making fun, but he's he's quite serious at the same time as Twain always was. So that you see, yeah, the Gilded Age is happening uh, in the country during the war, and it happens everywhere, but of course not in the South. The South really was, as I mentioned before, a and took many, many years to come back. Um,
0: what frames the ending of this period? You, you, you talk about 1877 as, as the yeah. end of this period. What frames that? What gives that, this period some kind of an end point?
1: well the the traditional endpoint and it's, and it 's a reasonable one is what 's called the compromise of eighteen hundred seventy seven and as I mentioned before, I was interested in the failure of compromise political compromise um, compromise that was written right into uh, statutes and the compromise of eighteen hundred and seventy seven refers to the election after uh, Grant left office and uh, what that means basically is that there were votes stolen presumably and presumably Republicans stole the election but Democrats were not allowing certain Republicans especially in the south to vote. It's a very complicated thing. And so what allowed Hayes to take office really was presumably a back door or back room deal. Uh, that said, you can take office. We'll let you go into office. Democrats are saying this if you remove troops from the South and just let the South go back to its own uh, states' rights, which meant, in some ways, that the clock was going to be turned back on all the um, all the uh, advantages uh, that were, or all the victory, in a sense, uh, from the war. Still you have uh, black men enfranchised, still you have some civil rights legislation, but basically that wouldn't be enforced until the 1960s with uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Civil Rights Act, so it's almost 100 years later. Um, so that in some sense ends the period uh, because one sees that uh, the kind of impetus for Reconstruction is over and then you really do get into um, the... Gilded Age with a vengeance, and so to my mind, the Compromise of eighteen seventy-seven wasn't really a compromise; it was a kind of appeasement um, in order for the country presumably to heal, but at the expense of a group of people who had been um, who had been freed from slavery, but not necessarily allowed their full civil rights.
0: And talk a little bit about the areas where you see the the kind of relevance. To where we are today, the way in which these events in this period really run through almost seamlessly to some of the issues that that we look at today.
1: Well, you know, it's almost it's it's almost frightening, and it's certainly um, um, interesting. The issue that we call states rights or that the, that was called states rights during the nineteenth century still very much with us in terms of what you call it home rule or self rule or libertarianism the uh, or popular sovereignty was caused in the nineteenth century, which is the right for people to vote whatever, you know, for or against whatever they want, and in that particular case was slavery, but today you see that there is a great, there's a vast movement to people who feel the government is intrusive and that we, the people, should be able to vote up or down uh, what it is that we want, whatever it is that we want, um, whether it's pro or against gun control or anything like that. And so that kind of almost libertarianism is reminiscent to me, you know, for better and for worse, of uh, the movement toward states' rights and independence and Uh, ultimately got you into secession. So that's one aspect um, that's really worth thinking about, um, I imagine, and I would propose. And also, as I mentioned before, the whole issue of compromise, which is very much with us and something that um, is debated often because it seems that certainly in terms of um, today's Congress, Uh, there's a great deal of difficulty in finding common ground, whether it's on, as I mentioned, gun control, immigration, Mm -hmm. any of those things, and that there's a kind of uh, acrimony with which these issues are debated that makes you wonder if people are really listening to one another and really can forge and find common ground. Um, So I think that those are really very important and significant issues, and very much part uh, of the way we see the country is it the You know, is it the rule of the many? Is it the rule of the one? How much power uh, should government have? Is it important for government to legislate? And these kinds of questions um, are very much with us.
0: And in many ways, though, there's an optimistic side of all of that, because we are are able to get through these times, and yes, we may be debating the same issues with a different view over and over again, but we somehow get to the other side.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, and I think that the period that I'm talking about, you know, sort of concentrating on the war and the devastations of it, uh, does overlook this sense of um, of a sense of great possibility that people, as you mentioned earlier, could actually change things, and that's fueled by a kind of optimism and a sense that. Um, we can and will make the world a better place. A good example is, of course, the horrid assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and um, the country didn't fall apart either. This was right after the war. um, It didn't fall apart that there was a government in place and mechanisms in place for a very smooth transition of power. Um, People may have not liked Andrew Johnson for good reason, but nonetheless, power... Uh, there was a passage of power from uh, one executive to another. Congress did stay in uh, intact, and in fact, uh, all through and after the war, people did vote and did have a sense and that they would and could, and frankly, did change things. Um, there were tremendous and positive results from the kind of uh, debates and even the kind of unrest and war that came in the middle of the 19th century, Um, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, it was. I mean, (laughs) there was no more slavery. That's no small thing, especially since it was not going to go away.
0: Brenda Wineapple, the book is Ecstatic Nation, Confidence, Crisis, and Compromise, 1848 to 1877. Brenda, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Brenda, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jeff. This was wonderful. You you had some of the best questions that I've been asked uh, on any show. So I very much appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it, and you take care. Well, thank you. (laughs) You take care. Be well.
1: All right. Same to you. Bye. Bye. Bye.